even after 20 minutes outside, the research suggests that um, our blood pressure changes, our heart rate changes, our respiration kind of slows down. You know, we feel calmer. And then after more time outside, it looks like that can really help prevent mild depression. Our brain waves change, you know, where sort of the, the energy and blood flow in our brains is going. It sort of moves from our frontal cortex. You know, that's kind of our thinking and planning brain. And it shifts to sort of our sensory brains. And, and when that happens, it's really, really good for our mental and emotional health. Florence Williams has spent years researching the physical and mental impact of spending time outside. She writes about how nature can improve our mental health, help us recover from grief, and restore calm in our lives. I know when I've had a tough day, one thing that always makes me feel better is going surfing. It distracts me from stressors, and it forces me to be present. There's also something about being near water, especially breaking waves that helps me breathe deeper and just feel more peaceful. In Florence's book, The Nature Fix, she sets out to explain how the outdoors can improve our health, promote reflection, stimulate innovation, and strengthen our relationships. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. Florence Williams is a journalist, author, and podcaster. She's a contributor at Outside Magazine, and she's written for The New York Times, Slate, Mother Jones, and so many more. She's also the author of two books, Breast, A Natural and Unnatural History, and the book The Nature Fix. She's got a new book coming out next year. She's also a repeat Wild Ideas Worth Living guest. Her work focuses on how our environment shapes our physical and mental well-being. Florence is passionate about understanding how nature affects us as humans, so it makes sense that she also personally likes to spend time outside. However, her move from the mountains of Colorado to the urban landscapes of Washington, D.C. was a huge shift for her a few years ago. It was one that led to anxiety, insomnia, and depression. Can you just refresh us how you got involved with the science of nature? I remember you moved to D.C. to the city and it took a little toll. It did. Um, but, you know, I started out, I mean, I've been a science journalist for a long time and I've long been interested in these sort of connections between human health and nature or human health and the environment. Uh, and sometimes I write about the bad effects of that. For example, you know, the effects of pollution, industrial pollution on our cells, um, on our biology. I wrote a book about that, actually about breast health and sort of looking at breast cancer and early puberty. But, you know, that book was a little bit of a downer or it was interpreted that way, right? Because I was ultimately talking about sort of the ill effects of pollution. And then I moved, as you pointed out, to Washington, D.C. from the Rocky Mountains. Uh, and I felt this like big psychological shift you know, in myself. And I started to wonder about the science of, um, you know, our landscapes and the science of nature deficit disorder. Like, was that a real thing? 
Uh, and I was fortunate to get these assignments to really go around the world and talk to scientists who were looking at that exact question. You know, what happens to us in these different environments? Was that explaining what was happening in my own mind when I was feeling, you know, sort of depressed and anxious and, you know, disconnected? Can you tell us a little bit in doing that research, which ended up leading to the book, The Nature Fix, some of the things you learned about the benefits of nature? Like, how do I prove to my boss, my spouse, our family, that being outside is really good for us and we just need more time in nature? I mean, that's why scientists, I think, are interested in studying it, because they're actually, there are things that happen to our brains and bodies and they have a lot of social impact, you know, if we can sort of show this evidence, um, especially to institutions, to actually make a real difference in our lives. And so, you know, some of the things that, that they're finding, and there's mounting evidence, which is kind of what makes it an exciting field, too. Um, you know, even after 20 minutes outside, the research suggests that um, our blood pressure changes, our heart rate changes, our respiration kind of slows down. Um, you know, we feel calmer. And then after more time outside, it looks like that can really help prevent mild depression. Our brain waves change, you know, where sort of the, the energy and blood flow in our brains um, is going. It sort of moves from our frontal cortex, you know, which is where we solve a lot of tasks and tick off items on our to-do list. And, you know, that's kind of our thinking and planning brain. It's where we all really spend a lot of our time in modern life. Um, and it shifts to sort of our sensory brains, right? What are we seeing and smelling and how do our bodies feel in these environments? And when that happens, it's really, really good for our mental and emotional health. You know, we all tend to sort of reside in our thinking brains and our sort of ego-driven brains a little bit too much. And of course, there's a lot of science on meditation, right, and mindfulness and, and the sort of importance of feeling like your own problems and your own self is a little bit less significant. And your connection to nature and to your communities, which also happens, it turns out, when you're in nature, you know, those things are, are really, really good for our well-being. Um, I'm, I'm particularly interested you know, in the science of awe. And as a surfer, I, I know you can relate to this. You know, when we really feel like we're in the presence of something large and overpowering and beautiful, um, it's, it's really good for us. And that doesn't always happen in nature. You know, it happens in lots of places. But it turns out that nature is a really readily available and often easily accessed source of that, you know, if we just get out there. You know, when you did your research, did you also research the the amount of time in nature will equal to better mental health. Like you can be even happier if you're out in nature more. Cause I'm watching this show alone. It's like a Netflix series and they send people out into the wilderness. They're allowed to take 10 tools. And one of my friends who's a past guest was on like season seven. And so I'm fascinated with his show. And besides being hungry, they seem to have pretty positive states and they're out in the wild for a long time. And they just feel good and connected. And it's almost like the longer they're there, in some ways, they're more satisfied, hungrier, but more satisfied. That's really interesting because being alone is a whole different dynamic. Um, and it is one that I have really spent a lot of time thinking about uh, as someone who's also been alone in the wilderness a fair amount. But I, I think to your point, there are, well, really what you're asking is kind of the dose question. Yes. How much? Yeah. 
What's yeah, our prescription? And I, th- and I think the alone question is a little bit different. But as far as the dose question, I mean, it's one that people are really interested in because we're very practical and we sort of want to know, like, how, how much broccoli do we need to eat? You know, so scientists are looking at this. I, I, I think it really varies a lot in terms of where you are in your life, what you need, <laughs> right? There are just times when we just need a bigger hit because we're going through something difficult, you know, or um, we need to figure something out. If we are battling depression, you know, we might need more. But in general, the research seems to suggest that, yeah, the more the better, but even the tiniest doses are beneficial. Like even looking out your window is beneficial if you're looking at some nature out there. I've been trying to cultivate this sense of you know, awe, right, and beauty, because I'm, I'm really interested in the science of that. But even tiny doses of awe are helpful. So uh, there's this acronym, A-W-E, um, where if you even, like, you know, walk around your block, you know, see something kind of beautiful. Look at a flower, right, or a blossom or a cloud. And um, if the A is awareness, like attention, you know, just pay, pay attention to it for a minute. Um, and then the W is wait. So take a couple of breaths while you're giving your attention to this little item of beauty. And then the E is exhale. So what you're doing is you're, you're helping your body slow down by prompting it that way. Uh, and in that way, you're sort of allowing yourself to access the physiological benefits of awe. Um, which do include that slowing down. And, and it's really, it's a lovely little practice if you do it a couple times, really, even a day. Awe, awareness, waiting, and exhaling. I love that such a small exercise can help us slow down and take in the world around us. When we're outside in nature, our bodies physically change. Our nervous system calms down. Our blood pressure and heart rate both slow, and so does our breath. Florence personally experienced all of these effects during her research for her book, The Nature Fix. You've done some really unique things to test your research. Can you tell us about some of them? Well, I really like using my own body, you know, as a proxy for some of these experiments. It's not really science, right? I'm an N of one. So in a couple of instances, actually several instances while I was writing The Nature Fix, I wore a portable EEG cap, which is electroencephalography, and that measures brainwaves. And I wanted to wear it in different environments. So I wore it like on city streets. I wore it in city parks. And I wore it in wilderness settings. And there are a couple of things that we were looking at. And, you know, one, which I mentioned, are sort of the differences in, in brain waves in different parts of the brain. And then also in different qualities of brain waves. So some are indicative of a really sort of hyper alert state, which is not necessarily relaxing, right? Although it's important. And then some are more relaxing states. And, well, having lived in the Rocky Mountains for so long, I'm a little bit of a nature snob. <laughs> I'm trying to be less of one. I am less of one. But for me, human noise is really kind of annoying. 
Like I have a hard time relaxing when I can hear airplanes, for example, or lots of boom boxes and you know people running around. It's, it, it, it can be invigorating, but it's not necessarily a relaxing state. So for me, like I was kind of after alpha waves, for example, and sort of noticing when I got them. And I, I was really only able to access them in the wilderness, you know, in a really beautiful place that was free from a lot of human sound. I know you also did forest bathing for research. For the listeners who might not know, forest bathing is a mindfulness meditation practice that people can do in the woods. The Japanese word for it is shinrin-yoku, which means bathing in the forest atmosphere. So where did you go to do that? So I went to Japan and then I went to South Korea. Um, and, and both of those countries are taking forest bathing really seriously. It was kind of promoted in the 1980s as a reaction to uh, rapid industrialization in Japan, a lot of worker stress. And so there are all these really cool little research stations that you know just regular hikers can use while they're in parks in, in both of those countries. So what you can do is you can go like stick your arm in a blood pressure monitor before and after you spend even just like 20 minutes or 30 minutes, you know, kind of strolling along a trail. It's a way to really open up your senses. It's sort of a shortcut to mindfulness. And that's why it seems to work so quickly, even in 20 minutes. And I found that when I use those blood pressure monitors or those heart rate variability monitors, you know, yes, I did have a really nice kind of reduction in stress response. The question is sort of why? And there are a lot of theories about that. But one of the things I kind of like about the forest bathing sort of pedagogy, you know, and there is one because now there are so many people kind of training to be forest therapy guides. People talk about smell. And in Japan and South Korea, there are a lot of um, Hinoki cypress forests. And as soon as you walk into one, you know, it's kind of, it, it immediately feels like a magical space because it smells like sort of, Chris, I describe it as Christmas tree meets rub. You know, it's kind of invigorating. And it, it turns out that these tree aerosols, sometimes called phytoncides, they really seem to react with our immune systems in a good way, react with our bodies kind of lower our blood pressure, help us produce more killer T cells, you know, which help fight diseases and cancer. And so I even, at one point I was in a laboratory with this immunologist who studies these Hinoki tree oils. And I, I stuck my arm in a blood pressure monitor. Then I opened up a vial of these like essential oils, <laughs> which smells so great. And then I stuck my arm in the blood pressure monitor again. And my blood pressure dropped like, you know, I mean, like 10 points. It was nuts. It's so crazy. You know, I, I make fun of a friend who sells those essential oils for one yeah. of those companies, yeah. but like they totally work. And there's a certain <laughs> sagebrush, like sage smells really good in the California deserts. And so every time I'm running, we like rip off sage and we rip off rosemary and I'll just run with it. And I can run so much better just grinding it into my hand and smelling it. So there really is something about that. Is there forest bathing in the United States? Oh yeah, there's a ton of it. Actually, if you if you live in a city with an arboretum, a lot of these arboretums are now offering kind of forest bathing hikes, you know, with these like forest bathing guides. 
I'm actually getting certified to be a forest bathing guide because oh, cool. I really want to sort of tack this on to some of the talks I give. I think it'd be really fun to take groups of people out and, and do this. There's a website. It's the Association for Nature and Forest Therapy, A-N-F-T. And you can look for a guide in your local area. You can put in your zip code. So yeah, I definitely recommend you check it out. And it's, you know, it's not just like walking through the woods. It's it, it's really a, a kind of distinctive, almost meditative practice where you're not even necessarily walking, but you're kind of sitting sometimes. Um, you're befriending, you know, a being like a tree in, in the woods. It's, it's a way not only to engage your senses, but to sort of rethink your whole connection to the non-human world. Can you do this in like the desert? Yeah, absolutely. I think forest bathing is a misnomer, you know, and sort of nature bathing is a much better one. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I spent a lot of time with a neuroscientist in Utah, David Strayer, and he's done all his like brain studies in the desert showing that, you know, after a few days outside, what he calls the three-day effect, and, and these were in desert spaces, you know, people are much more creative and they, they sort of get into a different zone of interacting, you know, with the world that is helpful. You took a friend out into the wilderness as one of your experiments. And I think you took him for the three day effect. You took him camping three days. He didn't believe nature would be good for him. <laughs> so that was um, af after the Nature Fix came out, I made a podcast um, for Audible called The Three Day Effect. And the idea was that we would take different groups of people outside and, and run all these tests on them. So we did that with my friend Eric Weiner, who has written a book called The Geography of Genius, and in which he argues that cities are actually fantastic for human um, creativity and development. And he's right. You know, I mean, cities are fantastic. But we got into this funny sort of debate about, you know, nature versus city. And I really wanted to take him into my world. And he hates nature. Like, he hates bugs. He, you know, he hates the cold. <laughs> he really likes coffee shops. But he was working on a book at the time. And he was facing writer's block. And he was like also battling some depression that he was open about talking about. So we ran these tests on him where we tested his blood pressure. We tested his creativity. We measured um, heart rate variability and, and, and a bunch of other things that I described in the podcast before and after the three days outside. And he had this like vast improvement on all those measures. And in fact, even though he was cold and, and sort of complained about some of the hikes, you know, being too long, <laughs> he came home and he wrote like three chapters, like right on top of each other. And um, yeah, it was really fun to see. That's it. I'm going to the wilderness <laughs> like tomorrow. I love talking to you about the power of bird song and their specific type of bird song. Yes. So there are some bird songs that are particularly conducive to states of calm and uh, also sort of an alert calm, which is a really nice kind of calm because it sort of is wakeful and you can get stuff done. And, and that would be the sort of nice twittery, you know, sing song bird song. There's other bird song that's actually kind of grating and annoying. And that would be like the blue jays or the red winged blackbirds. <laughs> Those don't necessarily have the same effects. But you know, it's interesting to me because it makes sense that when you hear bird song, there's this feeling that all is right with the world. 
you know, there's not a huge storm coming. There's not a big predator there. It's like all's right. And so on this really subconscious level, humans, you know, respond to that and kind of feel like, la-di-da, this is a nice day. Yay. So you did all this research and all these experiments to write that book. You obviously learned a ton. How has it changed the way you are personally in nature? So I used to think I had to go, you know, into this beautiful nature trail where there were no people, you know, in Boulder, Colorado and, you know, have a, have a meaningful sort of wild experience. Now I'm much more kind of open-minded about what constitutes nature. And I know that there are benefits to opening my senses. So I spend a lot more time doing things like smelling, you know, the pine needles, looking for fractal patterns, you know, in trees, even things like, you know, eating outside, <laughs> reading outside. I, I've definitely, I've definitely changed kind of the, the dose that I get and, and how I approach it. You don't have to go on a backpacking trip to get your fix. You can still access the benefits of nature while you're just walking your dog or drinking your coffee on a bench in the park. Just change your focus. Notice the way the light filters through the leaves or notice the smell of jasmine in your neighbor's yard. These are small changes you can make to take advantage of being outside no matter where you are. When we come back, I ask Florence how the pandemic changed people's relationship with nature. Plus, she talks about how to spend time in nature, even if you live in a city. I'm all about the layers, which means I'm all about Arc'teryx. Their Cerium LT hoodie is a lightweight, versatile down hoodie that gives me the warmth I need, but it's still easy to pack for my trips to the mountains. This jacket is great as a mid-layer for snow sports, or as a standalone if you're just in need of a layer to keep you nice and toasty. Bonus, they come in amazing colors, so you can stand out no matter where you're adventuring. It's great to find a brand I can trust to make best-in-class outdoor gear so I can focus on getting out there. Find out more about Arc'teryx and the Cerium LT hoodie at rei.com forward slash b forward slash Arc'teryx. That's rei.com forward slash b forward slash A-R-C-T-E-R-Y-X. In the same pioneering spirit of our podcast, Teva is all about bringing wild ideas to life. An innovator in the sport sandal category, Teva has launched a brand new slip-on that delivers the same foot-hugging comfort as the original icon. Enter the Re-Ember, a next-generation camp shoe this quilted slip-on offers all-terrain versatility with a durable rubber sole and water-resistant finish. But the best part? The Re-Ember is reimagined with recycled materials, including a 100% recycled adventure-ready ripstop upper inspired by classic outdoor gear. So whether you're running around town, kicking back at the campground, or curled up on the couch, this cozy companion ensures toasty heat for tired feet. Go ahead, slip on and bliss out. Discover Teva's Re-Ember collection this fall with select colors available at your local REI and at REI.com.
For the past year and a half, our world has been turned upside down. For many of us, the COVID-19 pandemic made our lives much smaller. We spent a lot of our time at home, and a lot of us felt really lonely. But amidst all the stress and pain, we also sought refuge in nature. It was one of the few places we could actually go and enjoy ourselves. The pandemic forced a lot of us to spend way more time on our computers, sitting indoors way more than we usually do. But I also noticed that a lot more people got outside into nature locally. Like a lot more kids were surfing on the beaches in front of my house. Well, a lot of everyone was surfing a lot more in front of my house. A lot of trails got a lot more crowded. And I'm on the West Coast, you're on the East Coast. So I imagine we saw different things, but I'm curious, what did you notice? Yeah, although not that different. You know, I mean, the pandemic year was horrible and difficult and stressful, right, for so many people. The sort of silver lining is that I think on, on a lot of levels, it caused us to kind of re-examine, you know, our priorities and pay attention to our mental health. What I saw was really gratifying, as you mentioned, in terms of, of people going outside and actually noticing that it was helpful to their mental health. So, you know, the things that I've been talking about for a long time, that you've been talking about for a long time, it was like suddenly people got it. And that was really exciting. And people also got how grumpy they were by being on screens all day and feeling confined. So there was this really nice sort of natural experiment set up where people could close the computers and go for a walk and look at the sunset and suddenly feel so much better. And they noticed it. So that was, and, and I think we're also seeing kind of more mental health professionals take it seriously too, which is really important. So more therapists saying, well, yeah, you, you know, you can't go visit your family and you, you know, you can't go to a bar and you can't, you know, whatever, but are you going for walks? Are you getting outside? You know, are you able to enjoy some nature? So that alone is also, I think, a big win. I, I, I think that's so interesting. Have you read any of, I think I asked you this before, have you read any of Andrew Huberman's work? So he has this study and he studies, he runs the Huberman lab at Stanford. And he has this, you know, study that shows that our eyes, when we look at screens, essentially have to focus, which is like causes stress. But when you look at a wide vista, especially a horizon, like a sunset, a mountain, trees into the distance, your eyes automatically relax and that relaxes your entire body and being. It causes your stress hormones to like relax and subside. It's so fascinating, but I, I didn't really know that our vision, you know, you talked about smell, but it is really interesting how the senses in nature can really affect our mental health. That is really fascinating. I haven't heard that, but it makes so much sense. I know for eye health, we also just need vitamin D kind of hitting our retinas. And without that, we're much more likely to need glasses. Like our, if you look at um, young people, especially in parts of East Asia, where their kids, kids aren't going outside as much because they're in schools like all day long, normally, and then in the evening, um, there's a really, really high rate of prescription glasses among teenagers because of myopia caused by not having enough vitamin D hitting their eyes as they develop. It's really interesting. 
The pandemic also saw a lot of folks, especially younger people, dealing with anxiety and depression. Getting outside is particularly important when you're experiencing high levels of stress. It's easy to do when you live a short distance from some water or some trails, but how do you spend time in nature when you live in an urban environment? Florence has a few ideas. So if you do live in a city, first off, how can we still benefit from nature? So many ways. So many ways. You know, I, I described that sort of walking around the block awe practice. So we can become better observers of beauty and better observers of nature. So we can cue ourselves. You know, you mentioned going for runs and grabbing bundles of sage. I am also one of those eccentric people when I go outside. I'm like constantly grabbing needles off of, you know, evergreen trees and walking with them and smelling them and making everyone who's with me smell them too. You know, I try to pay attention to the birds. I try to look up at the sky, right? Wherever you are in a city, you can go out and look up and still feel like you're sort of part of the universe. Even if you don't see a lot of stars, you can see sunsets. You can see clouds moving. Um, You can see phenomenal, impressive, awe-inspiring changes of weather. These things that make us feel sort of part of the living world. And even, as I say, things like looking out a window. So having a space in the city where maybe you put your desk or a chair, you know, somewhere where it can access natural daylight, even that can be helpful. You know, you don't have to be an uber athlete climbing a a deserted mountaintop to get these effects. Are there cities, Florence, that are doing nature right? Like they're installing nature corners or, man, I'd love to see at Yosemite like a blood pressure machine where you can like (laughs) (laughs) measure before and after hiking up to the waterfall. I don't know if I'd like to see that there, but it'd be kind of cool for people to see it. Yes, there definitely are some cities that do it better than other cities. One thing I love is the Trust for Public Land has a a sort of tool for measuring access to parks. Uh, It's called Park Score. And you can actually put your city in there and see how it ranks. And it it measures things like park acreage per capita, distance to parks, what percentage of your city has access to parks. And and the, the key metric that they're interested in is this notion that we all should be living within 10 minutes of a park, a 10 minute walk of a park. Like that's sort of a basic human right. And when you start to map cities for that, you know, what's astonishing, but but maybe not so surprising is that certain neighborhoods have much better access to parks and much better access to high quality parks. You know, in in my city in Washington, D.C., you can see poverty from space because you can see the neighborhoods that don't have lots of tree cover. And of course, those are those are the underprivileged neighborhoods. They're neighborhoods with predominantly people of color. So you can really see these sort of social justice issues mapped out on these cities. And, and I think that's something that we absolutely need to address when we start talking about who, who should have access to parks, um, how do you improve access, and how do you improve the quality of parks. So I think that's a really good start. So you look a lot at the intersection of like justice, the environment, nature, all of it, science. I'm really curious, you know, what would an ideal green city look like? Because I work with this organization, Outdoor Outreach, and a lot of these kids are from inner city communities in San Diego. And 
pandemic really sucked for them. They didn't get outside at all. They couldn't run programs. They couldn't go to the beach. Beaches were closed. They don't have access. It's far. But if we could build a perfectly green city today with all the resources we have, what kind of things would be there? Well, we know from the science that trees increase physical health and mental health. So there have been some studies showing that if you have at least 11 trees on a city block, (laughs) that uh, equals a gain, a significant gain uh, in physical health, equivalent to like a $20,000 increase in in, in income. Um, And we know that- Wow. Wait, just 11 trees on a block. Well, as opposed to, I mean, there's a, you have, you know, you have, you have to have a comparison, but there, this was a study done in Toronto looking at street trees in cities. Um, And I think maybe the difference was, I think it was maybe city blocks that had 20 trees versus city blocks that had 11 trees. But it would also be true of like city trees, I mean, city streets that had, you know, a dozen trees versus city city streets that had no trees. So if you look at the comparisons, the more trees on a block um, equals this boost in in physical health, um, especially cardiovascular health, that's equivalent to a big bump in income. And there have been similar studies in the UK showing that especially in underserved communities, um, you get a bigger gain in health um, than in wealthy communities that have more green space. So it's like a way to sort of level the um, the health of a population by making the cities greener. So more parks, better quality parks. Um, and I think also the infrastructure that enables people to use those parks. So ideally, even schools, right, and other institutions that have green schoolyards and that have recess. So it kills me that in, in my city, only 20% of public school kids get the recommended dose of recess. You know, that's in a non-pandemic year. I think, as you say, for a lot of kids, you know, they got outside even less during the pandemic. So we need to green our institutions. We need to green block by block more trees, you know, if we live in a, a place that will support trees. And then if in places like where you live, where it's about access to the coast, then we need more access points. And then I think we also need a little bit of a shift, (laughs) you know, in priorities. And um, there are so many barriers to kids getting outside, including, you know, parental discomfort with it. The fact that the kids' parents are often disconnected from nature. So we're in sort of a two-generational problem now. But organizations like churches, like, you know, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts and other sort of community-based programs can really help make kids feel safe outside and and help them do what they naturally kind of want to do, which is go run around and climb some trees and jump in puddles and, you know, have a good time. You have a wonderful prescription. Tell us. Yes, thanks. I have a little motto that's very simple, and it's uh, go outside, go often, bring friends or not, and breathe. Let's hear that again. Go outside. Go often. Bring friends or not. 
and breathe. When we stop and appreciate moments of beauty in our surroundings, we allow ourselves the space to be happier and healthier. Thank you so much to Florence Williams for coming on and talking about the science behind why humans need nature. You can get her book, The Nature Fix, anywhere books are sold, and you'll have to keep an eye out for her upcoming book called Heartbreak, which is coming out in February of 2022. You can follow Florence's work at florencewilliams.com or on her Instagram at Florence999. That's F-L-O-R-E-N-C-E-999. And Florence Williams, I'm supposed to take you surfing, so let me know when you come down to San Diego. Wild Ideas Worth Living is part of the REI Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, Shelby Stanger, written and edited by Annie Fassler and Sylvia Thomas, and produced by Chelsea Davis. Our executive producers are Paolo Motola and Joe Crosby. As always, we appreciate when you follow the show, when you rate it, when you review it, wherever you listen. I read every single one of your reviews. They mean a lot to me. And remember, some of the best adventures happen when you follow your wildest ideas. Wildest Ideas.